Well, folks, we're going to be in The Great Escape, but remember, we're doing a little mini-series amidst The Great Escape. We have now gotten all the way to Exodus chapter number 36, and if you look um, on the screen here, you're going to see it says Exodus 36, 1. We're only going to get to one verse today, but you will understand in a minute why that is. We're going to get to Exodus 36, 1. But to give us a little bit of review to figure out where we're coming from, last week we finished up Exodus 35. We saw the faithfulness of the people continue as the craftsmen. Guess what? They follow the example of the givers. And boy, here came the artisans. And they were just as excited. They brought their talents and gifts to not only fulfill what God had called them to do, but also to teach others what it is that they knew in our message last week that was called a labor of love. So this morning, we're going to join the craftsmen as they are going to take the offering up. But see what's happening. The offering is pouring in. And guess what? In response to that, we're going to see these men step up and the, as the materials pour in. Now, the, now the, the materials were to be all the precious materials that were to be given to build the tabernacle. And as this uh, plethora of things is pouring into them, we're going to see the excitement that these craftsmen are going to have as they're going to all come together. And you're going to see them rally behind the common cause to accomplish God's will in our message this morning, which is called the intentions of the heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, God, for today, for this opportunity, Lord, to be in your house. Thank you, God, for the message. Uh, Lord, I did weather over this message and spend time in this message, Lord, and pray over this message. And uh, God, I'm confident this is what you would have me to preach. And Lord, I pray that you will use it, uh, Father, to speak to our hearts. Lord, if no one else needs to hear it but me, then God, I guess this is for me. But Lord, I do praise you for the opportunity to preach uh, your word. I pray, God, that you will empower me, Father, to share the very words that you would have me to share. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, the very human element would be removed. I know that, Lord, you have spoken to me, and my request now, God, humbly, is that you would speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, to give us a review, so we're going to make sure that we're all up to speed, just in case you've not been with us for this series. Exodus 35, as we were there, what we did is we witnessed God getting them back on track. Now, they had strayed into disobedience earlier in Exodus 34, and what we saw here is God's getting them back on track. He issued them a challenge, and it was about it was given to all of those that had a willing heart, a willing heart. And what we're seeing is all of those with a willing heart coming together. They are there to do the building project, take on the building project that was given to Moses, which was to build the tabernacle, which is God's earthly dwelling place. The initial instructions were given to Ex were given way back in Exodus chapter number 25, and now what we're doing is going, we're shifting from the instructions to the actual development and building of this project. So we recognize, just like the Israelites, God also gave us a, a building project. We talked about it, talked about it last week. So the, there, the Israelites, they were to build the Lord's tabernacle. And you and I, guess what? We are to build God's church. Just like them, right? It will require those with a willing heart. We've got to be willing. And then we've got to take personal responsibility and step up to the task at hand, which is exactly what we're watching the Israelites do. Now, as we saw last week, the offering was already coming in, and guess what? It will continue to come in as we pick up here in Exodus 36, chapter, or chapter 36, verse number 1. 
it says here, Then wrought Bezalel and Holiab, and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that the Lord had commanded. Now, the word I want you to pay attention to is the word wrought, the second word there, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. By that word wrought, what wrought means is that means to create, that means to work, that means to, to build. What we see here is that Bezalel, Holiab, and the other craftsmen, guess what? They're already getting on it, man. They're already after this thing. The materials are still coming in, and as they're stacking up at Moses' feet, they are actively working to convert these materials into the very things that God's commanded them. So it's this kind of unity of effort and heart that God needs in order to accomplish His will through His people. So we see this unity as they're working together. Now, it's certainly true the Israelites, as they're crafting the mobile earthly sanctuary, the mobile home of God, right? And, uh, but it's also true for us. You and I are called by, by God's name. You and I are to contribute our, our we're, we're supposed to contribute and give our labor in reaching the world, the lost world, for Christ. Last week we saw that both the tabernacle and the church were to be labors of love, right? And based upon the fervor we see with these Israelites, boy, they're getting after this thing. We can tell here that that's just what this, this, this is a labor of love for them. Remember the name of the, the name of this miniseries is a willing heart. These ex-Hebrew slaves, guess what? They are taking action. What's happened is they've converted the intentions to serve God into their actual reality. They're actually doing it. We talked about several weeks ago how hard it is sometimes to take something from a thought and then make it into an action. And this is a great lesson for us. They're taking their thoughts, their intentions, and they're turning them into action. Now, I feel like this is where God wants us to pause. We're going to explore this matter of converting intentions into actions. And I didn't know, this was not my plan, this was God's plan. But what I want us to look at this morning is the intentions of the heart. Now, what's first of all important for us to notice is this. Notice first that these Israelites, guess what? They knew their challenge was from God and not of their own human wisdom. This time they know it. Now, James defines what human wisdom is back in James 3 Verse 5, he says this, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. So this is earthly wisdom. This is human wisdom. It is, it is earthly. It is sensual. It is devilish. Okay? So we know the Israelites. They know what that's all about. Because guess what? It wasn't long before, earlier, their human wisdom, their earthly wisdom, it ended up them with a golden calf. And we know how that worked out for them. Man, it wasn't good. 3,000 people died in one day. Ouch. Bad news. So first of all, you and I, if this relate this to ourselves, we need to make sure that what we're doing, what we're going to do for God, is actually being motivated by Him and not by human wisdom, right? Because it's possible to do things in God's name for ourselves. I've been guilty of this in the past and did it for years. Listen to Paul's warning about this type of thinking. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 15. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion. Okay? That means they're looking for a platform that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. These people here are trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to use the gospel as a way to build up their reputation. Listen to this expression, verse number 13. For such are false apostles deceitful workers, transforming themselves in the apostles of Christ. These folks are serving their flesh in the name of God. 
And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. God will hold all accountable for not only what they do, but why they do it. Why they do it. So as believers, it's important to recognize whether, whether we are motivated by God to do the thing that we feel and intended to do, or if we're motivated by our flesh. Not only we can be motivated by our own desires, but we can also need to be mindful of the fact that, guess what? We have an enemy. God's enemy. Our enemy. He wants to influence us as well. Every time God's trying to work, the devil's always trying to subvert that work. He would love nothing more than to get you and I totally committed to something that on the surface might appear godly, but in the end will divert us from the work that God intended for us. It's very, very sneaky. He's much more successful at diverting God's people than he is at stopping God's people. He does it all the time. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Christ is, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Listen to this. Demonic influence. Whereof ye have heard that it should come even now already. It is in the world. Now, this is the first century when that warning goes out. It is in the world now. Let me tell you, it is strong and clear. There are evil influences in this world. We must be careful. What Paul is doing is he's warning us to be careful of what we allow to influence us. He's saying, be cautious. There are influences in this world that are certainly can appear godly, man. They can wear a godly mask, yet hide their true intentions. So you and I must be careful of not only what we allow to influence us, but who we allow to influence us as well. Remember, Satan is sneaky, he's seductive, and he's persuasive. For you see, God places intentions in the hearts of his children to accomplish his will. 1 Peter 2, verses 15 through 17. It says, For so is the will of God that with well-doing, this is God's will, right? We've talked about God putting an intention in our heart, that with well-doing, we, do, we are to do good things. We may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Show this world who God really is through our works as free and not using our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. We're here to serve God through serving humanity. And what should the service yield? Look at this, verse number 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Honor the king. And that lets a little king, if you notice that. That means honor those that are in authority over you. You know why we haven't had service the last few weeks? Because we've been honoring the authority of, the, of those over us. So we know that we're here to serve God through the works he's called us to do, right? So, but even when we feel certain that it's from God, even though we go, hey, you know what? This is God's will. Sometimes it still doesn't yield results. Unfortunately, that's just the case. The reason I say that is because, unfortunately, in our day and age, there are lots of good-intentioned Christians that never translate their intentions into tangible results for God. Okay? It goes something, because it's a thought, right? They get this idea, they go, man, it feels led upon their heart. And they go, you know what? Man, you know what I want to do? And they'll have this intention. But for some reason, it never manifests itself in any kind of ministry in any form. Why is this the case? Why is it? That's what we're looking at today. Consider how many times you and I have heard someone say, 
You know what, I'm gonna, I want to do this for God, or I have an idea for this ministry concept, or whatever, right? People talk this stuff, it comes out, but then for whatever reason, nothing happens. Now, from my own personal experience as a Christian, there are several reasons why I believe this is true, okay? Now, this is a list that I've compiled. These are my own personal struggles that over the last plus, almost 19 plus, almost 19 years, not quite 19 years yet, August 11, 2001 will be, well, 2020 will be 19 years. In this service to the Lord, in this time, guess what? I've made out every mistake you can make in the Christian walk. But what I've looked at in this message is the intentions. What stops the intentions from actually becoming a reality? And I made a list of five different reasons why I believe this is true. The first one being the fact that we're, we're fearful, right? Now, the Lord cries out from the Scriptures over and over and over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, fear not, fear not, fear not. In fact, the, term, the, the phrase fear not shows up 62 times in the Bible. In Genesis 15.1 is the very first time it shows up, and it says this, just Genesis 15.1, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Verse, and then the, the next phrase, be not afraid. Be not afraid. We all recognize that one. 26 different times that specific phrase shows up. The very first time in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses, and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Again, don't be afraid. Psalm 23, probably one of the most famous Verses associated with fear in the entire Bible. Psalm 23, 4 says this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Right? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In fact, if you were to trace it, and you were to find every different iteration of not to be afraid, it shows up hundreds and hundreds of times in Scripture. So we shouldn't keep, that fear should not keep us from converting our intentions to serve God into actions. But when it does, it's usually because of one of three different origins of fear, okay? Now, look at this. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. We're afraid of what we don't know. And that's an irrational fear, and I know that many of us, but still a lot of us struggle with that fear. We're afraid of what we, what we don't know. But what's important to remember, what's great to know, is the fact what you and I don't know, guess what? God does know. God knows. Psalm 147.5 says this, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Infinite. God knows everything. He knows the future. He knows the past. And he knows everything in between. Everything in between. So, then in Isaiah 40, verse 28 says this, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? That the everlasting Lord, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not, neither is weither, ne weither, he is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He knows everything. So what happens here? So when we don't know what lies ahead, take confidence in the fact that God does. God knows what lies ahead. And see, it's, it's with his understanding of that future, our future, that he calls us to service. He knows what's ahead as he calls us to service, meaning he's made a way for us to accomplish it. In order to be profitable for God, we must take steps of faith in him, not of our fear of the unknown. Then we have the fear 
of failure, the fear of failure. Boy, this is a big one, man. A lot of people struggle with this. I struggle with this severely. There are two things to keep in mind when it comes to failure. Well, first of all, everybody fails. It's a part of life, man. Nobody's perfect. That's just a part of who we are. If you're setting yourself up, if you believe that you're going to be perfect, man, you are setting yourself up for disappointment. There's no one. There's no one that's righteous. No, not one. Our very sin nature proves to us the fact that we are failures. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, meaning we've missed the mark. And it says, and come short of the glory of God. We have come short of God's glory. We have sinned. We have missed the mark, which means we have, we have failed. Failure is a part of the human experience. But it is fact, the most powerful tool that God uses in our lives to teach us. And the second thing to understand about this fear of failure is that consider the fact that if it were not for our failure to try to live righteously when we fail to do that, if it were not for that, the humility that comes along with that failure, you and I would not be able to humble ourselves to receive the gift of salvation. And you understand, it's our recognition of our failure that keeps God's law or that allows God's law to show us that we are sinners. It shows and reveals to us our lost condition. Romans 3.20 says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law shows us our sinful nature. It shows us our failure. Failure is one of the best ways you can possibly learn how to do something correctly. Anybody who's ever ridden a bike before, you can attest to that. Boy, I tell you, when I was teaching our daughter, our oldest daughter, Taria, she's now 26 years old, getting ready to have a baby pretty soon. Praise God. We're excited about that, getting ready to be grandparents. My name's going to be Pop and Christine's wife. Her name's going to be Lolly. We're going to be Lollipop, if you didn't know that. Anyway, that's a little side note. Anyway, we are here, here we are. I'm going to teach Taria how to ride a bike. And you know what? I get her on her bike, and boy, she's pedaling around. She's doing great, man. She's got her helmet on. She's got her pads on. She's all geared up. And she's going around, and we're on this kind of a little bit of a curve, and she's, she's doing great. I let go of the seat, and she's doing wonderful, and she's pedaling, pedaling. And all of a sudden, I notice her trajectory is kind of heading right towards the, towards the mailbox. And I'm like, Taria, Taria, turn, baby, turn, turn. I'm screaming at her. She's, she's pedaling. I can see her head turning, but her, <laughs> the bicycle's not turning. And boy, she runs straight into that mailbox. I mean, it hits her right about here, knocks her off the bike. The bike rolls in the yard. She just absolutely creams it, right? Absolutely creams it. But that failure, it helped her to learn because you know what? She was super conscious of the fact that she needed to make sure she learned how to, how to turn. And I know that's a story that's a little bit crazy, and she's probably not liking that I told you, but I did anyway. But so it is so glorious that God doesn't identify you and I by our failures, right? I don't call her mailbox. I call her Taria, right? We call her by that. We don't look at the failures. And what happens with God? He does not see us for our failures. He sees us for our successes. Philippians 2, verses 13 to 15 says this, For it is God which worketh in you. Check this out. But to will and to do of his good pleasure. Remember, God puts the intention in our heart that we might do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring, disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless. Look at this. Look what the title he gives us. The sons of God, praise the Lord, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So sons of God, what are you sent to do? You're here to do my good will, to do my good pleasure. You are to shine as lights in this world of darkness. That's us, man. God's given us a great purpose to fulfill, and as we accomplish it, what we see is not, is not for the, God sees us not for the failures of our past, but as his sons and daughters. And then there's that last aspect of fear. 
fear of persecution. Fear of persecution, or we might say ridicule, right? Now, what's important to understand here is if we're not suffering some type of persecution in your life right now, in your walk in Christ, if there's no persecution in your life, that's a problem. Say 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if you're living in Christ Jesus right now and you're doing all that you can to live for him, guess what? If you're not in persecution, it is coming. But take heart, take heart. Our problem is that we're so afraid of persecution, of any kind of suffering really at all, what it does is it causes us to conform ourselves to the world. We're not standing out as Christians. We have a tendency to want to conform, as Romans 12, 2 warns us about. We want to blend in, right? And what happens here, this very concept is being addressed in the church of Galatia. In Galatians 6, 12, listen to this as Paul writes, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. They said, look, they want you to look like a Jew. Why do they want them to look like Jews? Why do they want to have that appearance? Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They're saying, hey, man, would you guys just blend in with everybody else so nobody will recognize the fact that you and I are Christians? What are they afraid of? They're afraid of persecution. Let's look at Paul's attitude towards persecution. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. And he said unto me, my grace, this is God, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. Listen to this. Take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Remember, we're persecuted for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. He says, man, you know what? Saw, uh, Paul saw persecution as an opportunity to grow in his faith to be used more mightily by God because he trusted the Lord in the midst of his, uh, through his persecution as he was going through it, he saw God faithfully, powerfully using him through those times. It's the key is, as you and I trust in the Lord in the midst of tribulation, this is the most effective time God can work in our lives. Tribulation is the most powerful thing. God uses it in our lives in such a tremendous way. Many of us have gone through adversity. Many of us came to Christ because of adversity. Romans 5, verses 3 through 4 says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Well, we learn how to trust God and patience, experience. And through as we learn how to trust God, we start to see the, start to see the results of trusting God. And as Paul was saying, you know, he glories in his firmness because guess what? He was patient as he went through his tribulation and he waited and he learned. And his experience told him that, you know what? The more patient I am, the more I wait on God and the more tribulation comes, guess what I end up with? Hope. Hope. It is a gateway to hope. It's our willingness to stand for the Lord in the face of persecution that gives God ultimate glory. So we need not to be afraid. When we stand up, we need to stand there with pride, with strength, and honor in our God, and knowing the fact that, you know what? Fear is nothing more than a lack of faith. Just a lack of faith. So the second reason we don't allow our intentions many times to turn into ministries because we're unmotivated. Unmotivated. Guys, remember, this is a personalist. I'm telling you what, this is, these are things that I personally experience. Unmotivated maybe because we're lazy. Because we're lazy. Listen to this. Now, there's over 20 different verses that warn about being lazy. I'm just telling you, I've been lazy in the past. I've been lazy in the past. We all have, probably. But he says here in Proverbs 13, 4, The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. See, it's because what happens, ultimately, it comes down to this. 
our level of gratitude for the Lord, as well as our level of reverence, in order for us to be lazy, those have got to be way off. And what also has to be way off, you couple that with an overinflated view of ourselves, boy, that is the only way possibly that you and I could serve ourselves over serving God. If we had the attitude of Samuel, boy, I tell you what, you would serve God with all your heart. Listen to him in 1 Samuel 12, verses 23 and 24. Moreover, as for me, he says, Samuel, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, that I not be diligent in doing what I say I'm going to do, but I will teach you the good and the right way. He says, I will teach you. I will pray for you. I will invest in you. He says, I will do all that I can. He says, look at this. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. He has the right attitude about God, the right reverence for God. With his proper view of God, man, we can't help but serve him. It's only when we have ourselves way off track and we're serving ourselves that we can have selfishness and that kind of stuff running our lives that we can actually let laziness control ourselves. Because laziness simply says what I want is more important than what God wants. Now, then there is to be unmotivated because maybe we feel inadequate. We feel inadequate. Boy, this is one that I struggle with for many, many years. Inadequacy. Now, there's different, different types of inadequacy. Now, if you have a biblical sense of, of, of inadequacy, then that's actually a good thing. Because guess what? We are inadequate. The more we realize that we are, but we're dependent upon God, the more God can work. What happens is this inadequacy that we sometimes feel is the fact that we don't think that God can work through us. We don't feel that we feel inadequate. We think that God can't use someone, someone like me. And that is an absolute lie because God created all of us with a mission and a purpose. If you're a child of God, he's called you here. He's placed it in your heart to reach this world for the gospel. Paul addresses this kind of mindset in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. He says, look, we're not sufficient to think anything as of ourselves. We don't deserve to think of ourselves as anything, but our sufficiency is of God. He says, look, we're sufficient, not because we're anything special, but because we trust in the Lord, man. We understand where our sufficiency comes from. Realizing that we're insufficient is the first step to be used mightily by God. The second step is to put our trust in him and not in ourselves. If we're focused on ourselves and that inadequacy, we're going to not be able to see God. But if we take ourselves out of the equation and we just see the Lord, guess what? You and I become irrelevant to the equation. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. God is all sufficient for us. It's not about us. It's about him. Then maybe being unmotivated because of a, because of a hardened heart. Hardened heart. What we've noticed, and we've noticed in our study right here, we've been watching these Israelites, and guess what? God said those with a willing heart. That means there were some with an unwilling heart. There were some that had a heart that was, that was soft. It was, it was all about the things of God, and there were others that said, you know what? I'm not going to get involved. And what we realize is the fact that, you know what? That's true in life. That's true in the calling. As we're called to work for the Lord, as we're called to share the gospel, there are some that are soft-hearted. There are some that are willing. There are some that say, you know what? God, use me. And there's others that say, you know, not me, not me. We've got to be careful that that's not us because guess what? God can't use us if we've got a hardened heart. Even if we have a good idea, if we have a hardened heart, guess what? It'll never make its way into action. God is compassionate for this world. And guess what? You and I need to be as well. And the last one in regards to being unmotivated is being unmotivated because of sin. God forbid. God forbid. 1 Corinthians or 1 John 6 verses 1 through 9. Now this would be sin living outside of the will of God. Anything. It could be something severe as uh, well, I mean I don't even know, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, theft, murder, all those things. 
but it can also be subtle little things. We're outside the will of God. Guess what? We are sinning. 1 John 6 Verse 9 says this, or 6 through 9, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We claim that we're walking with God, yet we know for a fact that we're not because we're not, in right, we're not right with the Lord. Guess what? We are lying to ourselves. We're trying to fool ourselves. It is not true. But if you walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins. So if here we are, we find ourselves in sin. We find ourselves doing something we need not be doing. Something that when you do it, you go, you know what? I know it's wrong. I'm never going to do it again. And you reprove yourself day after day after day. But you find yourself doing it again and again and again. Stop. Because you know what? When you were willing to turn, look at that verse 9. This is so good, man. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Sins, forgives our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a child of God, if you're involved in something you need not be, get out. Turn to God, confess it, and he will heal you. This verse is all about seeing, first of all, the problem and the solution simultaneously. What it teaches us is this. You and I, we cannot serve God and serve sin at the same time. It's impossible. Matthew 6, 24 says this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one. This is Jesus himself saying this. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What he's saying is you cannot serve this, serve this world and God at the same time. You need to choose. What did, what did uh, Joshua say? Choose you this day which whom you will serve. You decide. Now, if this describes us, that's exactly what we need to listen to. Joshua's challenge in Joshua 24, 15. He said in that, if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Will it be God or will it be the world or ourselves, right? They sometimes, unfortunately, go hand in hand. If we're involved in sin, guess what? We'll be ineffective for God until we repent of that sin. And we submit ourselves to God because guess what? He is ready to restore us. Anybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you're involved in, God is ready to restore you right now. He loves you. And guess what? He won't remember for you for what you've done. He'll remember you for who you are, a son or a daughter of God. But get out. God is our righteous example. Another reason I believe that so many people Christians, their intentions, they don't ever become actions. It's because they're disorganized. They're disorganized. Now, this disorganized meaning uh, in, in this first one, I give you a lack of order. I know that sort of sounds redundant, but pair with me, right? Now, this is something that I struggle with. Thank God for my wife. She's organized. I'm not naturally organized. She's teaching me. But you know what? It's still a work in progress. I'm 53 years old, and I'm still a work in progress. What we find with God is, guess what? God is very, very ordered. God is very ordered, extremely ordered. Look at nature. Look at the way your body functions. Look at the balance of your body, the two different sides. Look how the DNA looks when it's formed a perfect double helix. Look at how the, the, the sun and the moon, look at the, the sunrise and the sunset, how they can be timed. They can tell you on your phone what time the sun rises. They can tell you the tides, all these things. Everything is in order, fashioned together. We find that God is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14, 40 says this, Let all things be done decently and in order. That's God's way. 1 Corinthians 14.33, it says, For God is not the author of confusion. We know who is. 
but it's certainly not God, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is orderly, and guess what? You and I should be as well. Then disorganized because of a, a lack of planning, right? So we have disorder, and then we have a lack of planning. Boy, this is another one. This is a huge one. There are so many good-hearted, good-intending Christians that don't accomplish things for God because guess what? They plan to fail. And if you plan to fail, you fail to plan. Or you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Planning is important. Bottom line is, guys, guess what? God is a planner. Think about it. What's he been doing? From Exodus 25 on, what was he doing? He was telling the plans of the tabernacle. He was laying it out in specific detail down to the finest minute detail. What even the direction it would be facing, the heights, the sizes, all those things. God is a planner and you and I should be planners as well. And then disorganized because of corruption. Corruption, let me explain. 2 Peter 1, 4 says this, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What we find with that word corruption is that corruption is linked to things of the world. An example I might give you, let's say you had the intention, you wanted to organize something, but what happens is it becomes disorganized because you go, look, you know what, I was going to create a, a youth group and I was going to do something that I thought was going to be wonderful for the kids and my intention was to do it this way, I want to do it godly. But then you start looking at the world for examples and next thing you know, you've incorporated the world into it and no longer is it about God, it's now been corrupted. So corruption can be introduced to a godly intention through human weaknesses, but on top of that Corruption can come through the things we allow to influence us. Proverbs 1.5 gives, gives us some advice here about those that we allow to influence us. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. Wisdom cometh from above. This wise counsel, this is talking about people that will give you biblical counsel, those that will speak biblical truth unto you. So in order to keep ourselves out of corruption, we need to ensure that we're receiving biblical counsel as well as learning and gaining our knowledge from the Word of God, not from the Internet, not from Google, not from Oprah Winfrey, but from God, right? And then the number four, being impatient is another reason why people have such a struggle with taking their intentions from an, from an idea and a concept that God's laid upon their heart and allowing it to actually become a, a, a physical, tangible thing. Impatience. Oh my goodness gracious, let me assure you right off the bat, God's timing is perfect, okay? God's timing is perfect. Sometimes, you know, there's three answers to prayer. There's yes, there's no, and there's wait, and we don't like wait. But guess what? God knows, and in God's time, it will work out as it should. We saw this in the book of Esther a couple years ago when we studied the book of Esther. We saw when we got to Esther chapter number 8. That's when we saw everything. First seven chapters, man, we saw all this calamity, all this craziness. Everything seemed completely out of control. And then we see in verse number 8, everything came together and exactly as it did, everything crisscrossed exactly as it should. And it works out incredibly. It's only God. His timing is perfect. But everyone in, the, in this story, if you'd asked them, they would have thought God was way off track. And we see it again in Lazarus. In Lazarus' resurrection, which we saw in Luke 16 and in John 11. In that example, right, Moses doesn't show up, or Jesus doesn't show up until four days later. Lazarus has been dead for four days. But what's interesting, in Jewish culture, guess what? For three days, if you were dead for three days and you were to come back to life, they always believed that the Spirit would stay for three days. And so if on three days he had come back to life, they said, well, it's because the Spirit wasn't gone. But when you reach day number four, he's dead. So Jesus waited for that fourth day in order to prove that he was God. And what he had done was 
was impossible. Number four. So what happens? That, again, God's timing is perfect. But if we think about this idea of impatience, impatience, well, we certainly, there's an example that certainly pops into mind of a couple that became impatient, okay? We think back to Abraham and Sarah, and I know you guys know where I'm going to go, but for those of you that don't, back in Genesis chapter number 12, there's a 75-year-old man by the name of Abraham, Abram at the time, and God comes to him and says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to multiply your seed, and I'm going to make it you know, like the sands of the sea, and, and understand that his, his wife was barren. She'd never had children. They're very old people. And what happens is that verse, for, so verse 12, or chapter 12, he's 75. Well, now for 10 more years, they're out on this journey, and he's still waiting for this thing to happen. He's still waiting for this to happen. So what happens? Now he's 85 years old. And what happens is Sarah goes, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we help God out? My handmaid, her name's Hagar. You know what? I'm sure she can have kids. She's not barren. Why don't you lay with her? And we know what we'll do? We'll help speed up God's plan. They became impatient, and Hagar had a child. His name was Ishmael, and Ishmael and his descendants, guess what? They became the enemies of God, and they are the enemies to God, of God unto this day. They corrupted God's plan because of their impatience. And then the last reason, the last reason good-intentioned Christians like us don't convert our desires that are internal, that are given to us by God into ministry, is because we get distracted. Boy, boy, oh boy, we get distracted. Now, you and I right now probably live in the 21st century. We probably live in the most distracted generation of all time. I would say that absolutely got to be true. There's no way it's not. We live, you and I live in, we live in continual, perpetual sensory overload. Everything around us is constantly trying to get our attention. Amazingly so. And the Bible defines these types of distractions as what we call the cares, the cares of the world, okay? Mark 4.19, Jesus describes it himself. He says, and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in. So this is drawing our attention. What do those things do? It says, they choke the word and becometh unfruitful. They choketh the word and become unfruitful. What this is saying here is in this verse, it's saying, look, there were people that heard God's word and their initial response was, hey, you know what? I'm going to follow the Lord. And here they go. They're coming after him. And then what happens? Their eyes, their ears, their mind, they get distracted. And what happens? The direction they were heading, which was toward God, suddenly, because their eyes, their ears, and their mind were distracted and they got caught up in the cares of the world, their direction towards God starts to slow. And next thing you know, they're, they're heading towards the world, Right? 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Like we've lost sight of God. We're not loving God. If we're following the world, our love for God is not there. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So whether you and I are led to destruction or the abundance of God, it's up to us. You and I get to choose. We choose where our attentions are set. Because guess what? Whatever has your attention, it will guide your steps. Always the case. Always the case. Serving the Lord through our lives is why we were created. It's why he saved us. And it's also why he called us to serve him. It's the whole reason why we're here. 
As we've seen today, there are tons of things, there are lots of obstacles that can get in the way of fulfilling God's will. And you know, I, those are the ones I listed. These are the ones I personally struggle with. But you know what? There may be more. You may have others. But bottom line is we look at this, right? We looked at the first one being because we're fearful. Fear of the unknown, fear of failure, maybe fear of, fear of persecution. Then about being unmotivated because maybe we're lazy, maybe because we feel inadequate, perhaps we have a hardened heart, or God forbid we were caught up in sin. And then there was a matter of being disorganized, right? Why don't people make these things come to fruition? Why can't they take their intentions and make them real? Disorganized, man. There's disorder in their life. They have a failure to plan, and they've allowed corruption to interfere in that plan. And then there was impatience, just the inability to wait on God. God has an intention and a plan, and God will work it out in his time if we'll simply wait. Patience is a virtue, certainly is. God has what's called long-suffering. That's incredible patience, even through adversity. And lastly, the distractions of the world, the distractions of the world. And boy, oh boy, do we have them. If you've got a cell phone, you've got every distraction you could possibly imagine. Beeping, bopping, zinging, zipping, vibrating. It's constantly trying to get your attention. TV, people, the world, everything that's going on around us, man. But understand, it only takes one to stop those intentions from becoming a reality. It only takes one. But I would hazard to guess that there are probably some of us in this room at home that are watching this recorded, and probably you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I don't have just one. I got a, I got a couple of these that are, that are stopping me. And you know what's even scarier to consider? I can imagine that there's probably some people out there, and you say, you know what? I got a problem with every one of these. These are all a part of my struggle. Understand, the devil does not want you to succeed. The devil does not want you to serve God. He's going to use everything he possibly can throw at you to stop you. But, man, I got some good news for you. As a children of God, man, child of God, I have encouragement. In every single one of these cases, there is only one thing that you need to remember. 1 John 4, 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Listen to that. Not been conquered by them. Have overcome them. Why? Because greater is he that is in you, who is in us, the Holy Spirit of God. When you receive Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God moved with inside of you. That spirit is stronger than that one that is, look the last part of this is, than he that is in the world, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, the devil on this earth. Guess what? It says here that the one that is in us is stronger than him. And that is always the case. The Bible says that the, the demons tremble in the presence of God. The spirit of God dwells within you, believer. And guess what? You have the power to overcome. You have the, the power to take an intention from your mind, from your heart, and bring it to reality. And it's only because we allow the cares of this world and the things, the personal fears and the doubts and all this garbage to get in the way that the devil feeds that he will stop. You and I need not stop because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. For you see, when we fully surrender ourselves to God and we live in complete dependence upon him, <laughs> the good news is nothing can stop the intentions of the heart. If you're led of the Lord to do something, you feel compelled to do it, God will empower you to accomplish it. The devil wants to stop you. But guess what? He is powerless against God. 
And if we are fully submitted to the Lord, he is powerless to stop us. Guys, I want to encourage you. Let's live for the Lord. Let's do what we do. Let's live this life for the glory of God. We're not promised tomorrow. If you have something in your heart that you want to do, do it today because guess what? Tomorrow might not come. The Lord has empowered you. He's, in, he's given you the gifts and talents just like he did Bezalel and Eliab. He gave them their gifts and talents so that they might fulfill the things that God had placed in their hearts to do. And guess what? If he's placed it in your heart to do it, then by gosh, guess what? He's going to empower you to get it done. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today and for my brothers and sisters, Lord, for the opportunity we've had to just join around the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement we've seen in the Scriptures, Father, about what it is that we're called to do. And, Lord, realizing the fact that there are many things that want to stop us, but, God, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Praise God. We are conquerors, Lord. Thank you so much that the power is not in us. It's in our dependence upon you. So, Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, as we are in our separate places, God, and as this is posted and recorded, God, I pray that you'll speak to their hearts, Lord Jesus, that you will help them to step up this day. And as the challenge is placed before them, Lord God, help them, Father, to take their stand, to take personal accountability for what it is you've asked them to do, Lord God, and to follow through with it. Help their intention to become a reality. And with our heads still bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, you know what, I... I don't know that, <laughs> that I'm even a child of God. I don't even know exactly what that means. I've heard I'm a child of God, but I don't know. Guys, I was not raised in church. I went my entire life, 34 years old, before I sat in a church service. At 34 years old, somebody asked me a question. They said, God forbid, if you were to die tonight, if this is your last night on earth, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And I said, I hope so. I honestly did not know. And you know what? If you have that same doubt in your heart, I have good news for you good news for you. The Lord loves you. He loved me. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We saw that tonight. And guess what? That's all of us. We've all fallen short. None of us are worthy of God. Not a one of us is worthy of heaven. But because we were unworthy and because we were separated from God because of our sin, he sent a Savior. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, to come on this earth to live a humble life and to die on a cross absolutely innocent for the sins of the world. And that blood, when it was shed, guess what? It had the power to pay the price for sin. And the Old Testament was always an animal without a spot and without a blemish, but now the Son of God, the perfect blood of a perfect man was given for the souls and the sins of man. And just where you sit right now, God's reaching out to you. And if you feel him tugging on your heart and you say, you know what, I, I'm afraid. If I die today, I don't know where I'm going to go. Let me assure you, brother and sister, guess what? You can receive Christ tonight, today, this morning, tomorrow, whenever you're watching this. Because you know what? He loves you right where you are. He created you for a purpose that's so much greater than you can possibly imagine. He knows your name, and he died for you on the cross. And all he's doing is reaching out to you right now. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is not about a ceremony. It's not about a magic prayer. This is about the heart of a human being turning to a mighty God. And Jesus reaches out to you right now. And with love in his, eye, love in his eyes, he asks you if it was him reaching out to you instead of me. And he said he would receive you right now, exactly where you are. Would you receive him or would you reject him? If you would receive him, I'm going to give you that opportunity. God loves you right where you are. And let me tell you, this is just a matter of the heart. It doesn't take me. It doesn't take anything. This is between you and God, no matter where you are. You can be in your car, in your home, wherever you are. You can pray this prayer, and if you mean it, 
God will save you. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The heart is the key. God's listening to your heart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. I'm going to pray out loud. You can pray out loud if you want, or you can pray in your heart or in your mind. The prayer is not really important. It's what God's, he's listening to your heart. And if your heart's sincere, God will reach down. He will save you right where you sit. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I am so sorry for my sin. God, I, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for the sins of the world. And I'm asking you right now, God, to forgive me of my sins, to pay the price for my sin debt, to God come into my heart, to come into my life, and to save me. Lord, I turn from my old life that you might live through me. God, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.